Chapter Twenty Two of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Two The Smugglers. Dante had not been a day on board before he had a very clear idea of the men with whom his lot had been cast. Without having been in the school of the Abbe Faria, the worthy master of the young Amelia, the name of the Genoese tartan, knew a smattering of all the tongues spoken on the shores of that large lake called the Mediterranean, from the Arabic to the Provençal, and this while it spared him interpreters, persons always troublesome and frequently indiscreet, gave him great facilities of communication, either with the vessels he met at sea, with the small boats sailing along the coast, or with the people without name, country or occupation, who are always seen on the quays of seaports, and who live by hidden and mysterious means, which we must support to be a direct gift of providence, as they have no visible means of support. It is fair to assume that Dante was on board a smuggler. At first the captain had received Dante on board with a certain degree of distrust. He was very well known to the customs officers of the coast, and as there was between these worthies and himself a perpetual battle of wits, he had at first thought that Dante might be an emissary of these industrious guardians of rights and duties, who perhaps employed this ingenious means of learning some of the secrets of his trade. But the skilful manner in which Dante had handled the lugger had entirely reassured him, and then, when he saw the light plume of smoke floating above the bastion of the Chateau d'If, and heard the distant report, he was instantly struck with the idea that he had on board his vessel one whose coming and going, like that of kings, was accompanied with salutes of artillery. This made him less uneasy, it must be owned, than if the newcomer had proved to be a customs officer. But this supposition also disappeared like the first, when he beheld the perfect tranquillity of his recruit. Edmondus had the advantage of knowing what the owner was, without the owner knowing who he was. And, however the old sailor and his crew tried to pump him, they extracted nothing more from him. He gave accurate descriptions of Naples and Malta, which he knew as well as Marseille, and held stoutly to his first story. Thus the Genoese, subtle as he was, was duped by Edmund, in whose favour his mild demeanour, his nautical skill, and his admirable dissimulation pleaded. Moreover, it is possible that the Genoese was one of those shrewd persons who know nothing but what they should know, and believe nothing but what they should believe. In this state of mutual understanding, they reached Leghorn. Here, Edmond was to undergo another trial. He was to find out whether he could recognise himself as he had not seen his own face for fourteen years. He had preserved a tolerably good remembrance of what the youth had been, and was now to find out what the man had become. His comrades believed that his vow was fulfilled. As he had twenty times touched at Leghorn, he remembered a barber in St. Ferdinand Street. He went there to have his beard and hair cut. The barber gazed in amazement at this man with the long, thick and black hair and beard, which gave his head the appearance of one of Titian's portraits. At this period it is not the fashion to wear so large a beard and hair so long. Now a barber would only be surprised if a man gifted with such advantages should consent voluntarily to deprive himself of them. The Leghorn barber said nothing and went to work. 
When the operation was concluded and Edmond felt that his chin was completely smooth and his hair reduced to its usual length, he asked for a hand glass. He was now, as we have said, three and thirty years of age, and his fourteen years' imprisonment had produced a great transformation in his appearance. Dante had entered the Chateau d'If with the round, open, smiling face of a young and happy man with whom the early paths of life have been smooth and who anticipates a future corresponding with his past. This was now all changed. The oval face was lengthened. His smiling mouth had assumed the firm and marked lines which betoken resolution. His eyebrows were arched beneath a brow furrowed with thought. His eyes were full of melancholy, and from their depths occasionally sparkled gloomy fires of misanthropy and hatred. His complexion, so long kept from the sun, had now that pale colour which produces, when the features are encircled with black hair, the aristocratic beauty of the man of the north. The profound learning he had acquired had besides diffused over his features a refined intellectual expression, and he had also acquired, being naturally of a goodly stature, that vigour which a frame possesses, which has so long concentrated all its force within itself. To the elegance of a nervous and slight form had succeeded the solidity of a rounded and muscular figure. As to his voice, prayers, sobs and imprecations had changed it so that at times it was of a singularly penetrating sweetness, and at others rough and almost hoarse. Moreover, from being so long in twilight or darkness, his eyes had acquired the faculty of distinguishing objects in the night, common to the hyena and the wolf. Edmond smiled when he beheld himself. It was impossible that his best friend, if indeed he had any friend left, could recognise him. He could not recognise himself. The master of the young Amelia, who was very desirous of retaining amongst his crew a man of Edmond's value, had offered to advance him funds out of his future profits, which Edmond had accepted. His next care on leaving the barbers, who had achieved his first metamorphosis, was to enter a shop and buy a complete sailor suit. A garb, as we all know, very simple and consisting of white trousers, a striped shirt and a cap. It was in this costume, and bringing back to Jacopo the shirt and trousers he had lent him, that Edmond reappeared before the captain of the lugger, who had made him tell his story over and over again before he could believe him or recognise in the neat and trim sailor the man with thick and matted beard, hair tangled with seaweed, and body soaking in sea brine, whom he had picked up naked and nearly drowned. Attracted by his prepossessing appearance, he renewed his offers of an engagement to Dante. But Dante, who had his own projects, would not agree for a longer time than three months. The young Amelia had a very active crew, very obedient to their captain, who lost as little time as possible. He had scarcely been a week at Leghorn before the hold of his vessel was filled with printed muslins, contraband cottons, English powder, and tobacco in which the excise had forgotten to put its mark. The master was to get all this out of Leghorn free of duties and land it on the shores of Corsica, where certain speculators undertook to forward the cargo to France. They sailed. Edmund was again cleaving the Asia Sea, which had been the first horizon of his youth. 
and which he had so often dreamed of in prison. He left Gorgon on his right and La Pianosa on his left, and went towards the country of Paoli and Napoleon. The next morning, going on deck, as he always did at an early hour, the patron found Dante leaning against the bulwarks, gazing with intense earnestness at a pile of granite rocks, which the rising sun tinged with rosy light. It was the island of Monte Cristo. The young Amelia left it three-quarters of a league to the larboard and kept on for Corsica. Dante thought, as they passed so closely to the island, whose name was so interesting to him, that he had only to leap into the sea and in half an hour be at the promised land. But then what could he do without instruments to discover his treasure, without arms to defend himself? Besides, what would the sailors say? What would the patron think? He must wait. Fortunately, Dante had learned how to wait. He had waited fourteen years for his liberty, and now he was free he could wait at least six months or a year for wealth. Would he not have accepted liberty without riches if it had been offered to him? Besides, were not these riches chimerical, offspring of the brain of the poor Abbe Faria, they had not died with him? It is true, the letter of the Cardinal Spada was singularly circumstantial, and Dante repeated it to himself from one end to the other, for he had not forgotten a word. Evening came, and Edmond saw the island tinged with the shades of twilight, and then disappear in the darkness from all eyes but his own, for he, with vision accustomed to the gloom of a prison, continued to behold it at last of all, for he remained alone upon the deck. The next morn broke off the coast of Aleria. All day they coasted, and in the evening saw fires lighted on land. The position of these was no doubt a signal for landing, for a ship's lantern was hung up at the masthead instead of the streamer, and they came to within a gunshot of the shore. Dante noticed that the captain of the young Amelia had, as he neared the land, mounted two small culverins, which, without making much noise, can throw a four-ounce ball a thousand paces or so. But on this occasion the precaution was superfluous, and everything proceeded with the utmost smoothness and politeness. Four shallops came off with very little noise alongside the lugger, which, no doubt in acknowledgment of the compliment, lowered her own shallop into the sea, and the five boats worked so well that by two o'clock in the morning all the cargo was out of the young Amelia and on terra firma. The same night, such a man of regularity was the patron of the young Amelia, the profits were divided, and each man had a hundred Tuscan livres, or about eighty francs. But the voyage was not ended. They turned the bowsprit towards Sardinia, where they intended to take in a cargo which was to replace what had been discharged. The second operation was as successful as the first. The young Amelia was in luck. This new cargo was destined for the coast of the Duchy of Lucca, and consisted almost entirely of Havana cigars, sherry, and Malaga wines. There had been a bit of a skirmish in getting rid of the duties. The excise was, in truth, the everlasting enemy of the patron of the young Amelia. A customs officer was laid low and two sailors wounded. Dante was one of the latter, a ball having touched him in the left shoulder. 
Dante was almost glad of this affray, and almost pleased at being wounded, for they were rude lessons which taught him with what eye he could view danger, and with what endurance he could bear suffering. He had contemplated danger with a smile, and when wounded had exclaimed with the great philosopher, Pain, thou art not an evil. He had, moreover, looked upon the customs officer wounded to death, and, whether from heat of blood produced by the encounter, or the chill of human sentiment, this sight had made but slight impression upon him. Dante was on the way he desired to follow, and was moving towards the end he wished to achieve. His heart was in a fair way of petrifying in his bosom. Jacopo, seeing him fall, had believed him killed, and rushing toward him, raised him up, and then attended to him with all the kindness of a devoted comrade. The world was not then so good as Dr. Pangloss believed it, neither was it so wicked as Dante thought it, since this man, who had nothing to expect from his comrade but the inheritance of his share of the prize money, manifested so much sorrow when he saw him fall. Fortunately, as we have said, Edmond was only wounded, and with certain herbs gathered at certain seasons and sold to the smugglers by the old Sardinian women, the wound soon closed. Edmond then resolved to try Jacopo, and offered him in return for his attention a share of his prize money. But Jacopo refused it indignantly. As a result of the sympathetic devotion which Jacopo had from the first bestowed on Edmond, the latter was moved to a certain degree of affection. But this sufficed for Jacopo, who instinctively felt that Edmond had a right to superiority of position, a superiority which Edmond had concealed from all others, and from this time the kindness which Edmond showed him was enough for the brave seaman. Then, in the long days on board ship, when the vessel gliding on with security over the Asia Sea required no care but the hand of the helmsman, thanks to the favourable winds that swelled her sails, Edmund, with a chart in his hand, became the instructor of Jacopo, as the poor Abbe Faria had been his tutor. He pointed out to him the bearings of the coast, explained to him the variations of the compass, and taught him to read in that vast book opened over our heads, which they call heaven, and where God writes in Asia with letters of diamonds. And when Jacopo inquired of him, What is the use of teaching all these things to a poor sailor like me? Edmond replied, Who knows? You may one day be the captain of a vessel. Your fellow countryman Bonaparte become emperor. We had forgotten to say that Jacopo was a Corsican. Two months and a half elapsed in these trips, and Edmond had become as skilful a coaster as he had been a hardy seaman. He had formed an acquaintance with all the smugglers on the coast, and learned all the Masonic signs by which these half-pirates recognise each other. He had passed and repassed his island of Monte Cristo twenty times, but not once had he found an opportunity of landing there. He then formed a resolution. As soon as his engagement with the patron of the young Amelia ended, he would hire a small vessel on his own account, for in his several voyages he had amassed a hundred piastres, and under some pretext land at the island of Monte Cristo. Then he would be free to make his researches, not perhaps entirely at liberty, for he would be doubtless watched by those who accompanied him, but in this world we must risk something. 
prison had made Edmond prudent, and he was desirous of running no risk whatever. But in vain did he rack his imagination. Fertile as it was, he could not devise any plan for reaching the island without companionship. Dante was tossed about on these doubts and wishes when the patron, who had great confidence in him, and was very desirous of retaining him in his service, took him by the arm one evening and led him to a tavern on the Via dell'Olio, where the leading smugglers of Leghorn used to congregate and discuss affairs connected with their trade. Already Dante had visited this maritime bourse two or three times, and seeing all these hardy free traders who supplied the whole coast for nearly two hundred leagues in extent, he had asked himself what power might not that man attain who should give the impulse of his will to all these contrary and diverging minds. This time it was a great matter that was under discussion, connected with a vessel laden with turkey carpets, stuffs of the Levant and Kashmir. It was necessary to find some neutral ground on which an exchange could be made, and then to try and land these goods on the coast of France. If the venture was successful, the profit would be enormous. There would be a gain of fifty or sixty piastres each for the crew. The patron of the young Amelia proposed as a place of landing the island of Monte Cristo, which being completely deserted and having neither soldiers nor revenue officers, seemed to have been placed in the midst of the ocean since the time of the heathen Olympus by Mercury the god of merchants and robbers, classes of mankind which we in modern times have separated if not made distinct, but which antiquity appears to have included in the same category. At the mention of Monte Cristo, Dante started with joy. He rose to conceal his emotion and took a turn around the smoky tavern where all the languages of the known world were jumbled in a lingua franca. When he again joined the two persons who had been discussing the matter, it had been decided that they should touch at Monte Cristo and set out on the following night. Edmond, being consulted, was of opinion that the island afforded every possible security, and that great enterprises to be well done should be done quickly. Nothing then was altered in the plan, and orders were given to get under way next night, and wind and weather permitting, to make the neutral island by the following day. End of chapter 22。Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well. That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Chapter twenty-three of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty-three, the Island of Monte Cristo. Thus, at length, by one of the unexpected strokes of fortune which sometimes befall those who have for a long time been the victims of an evil destiny, Dante was about to secure the opportunity he wished for, 
by simple and natural means and land on the island without incurring any suspicion. One night more and he would be on his way. The night was one of feverish distraction and in its progress visions good and evil passed through Dante's mind. If he closed his eyes he saw Cardinal Spada's letter written on the wall in characters of flame. If he slept for a moment, the wildest dreams haunted his brain. He ascended into grottos, paved with emeralds, with panels of rubies, and the roof glowing with diamond stalactites. Pearls fell drop by drop, as subterranean waters filter in their caves. Edmond, amazed, wonderstruck, filled his pockets with the radiant gems, and then returned to daylight, when he discovered that his prizes had all changed into common pebbles. He then endeavoured to re-enter the marvellous grottos, but they had suddenly receded, and now the path became a labyrinth, and then the entrance vanished, and in vain did he tax his memory for the magic and mysterious word which opened the splendid caverns of Alibaba to the Arabian fishermen. All was useless. The treasure disappeared and had again reverted to the genii from whom for a moment he had hoped to carry it off. The day came at length, and was almost as feverish as the night had been, but it brought reason to the aid of imagination, and Dante was then enabled to arrange a plan which had hitherto been vague and unsettled in his brain. Night came, and with it the preparation for departure, and these preparations served to conceal Dante's agitation. He had by degrees assumed such authority over his companions that he was almost like a commander on board, and his orders were always clear, distinct, and easy of execution. His comrades obeyed him with celerity and pleasure. The old patron did not interfere, for he too had recognised the superiority of Dante over the crew and himself. He saw in the young man his natural successor, and regretted that he had not a daughter that he might have bound Edmond to him by a more secure alliance. At seven o'clock in the evening all was ready, and at ten minutes past seven they doubled the lighthouse just as the beacon was kindled. The sea was calm, and with a fresh breeze from the southeast, they sailed beneath a bright blue sky, in which God also lighted up in turn his beacon lights, each of which is a world. Dante told them that all hands might turn in, and he would take the helm. When the Maltese, for so they called Dante, had said this, it was sufficient, and all went to their bunks contentedly. This frequently happened. Dante, cast from solitude into the world, frequently experienced an imperious desire for solitude, and what solitude is more complete or more poetical than that of a ship floating in isolation on the sea, during the obscurity of the night, in the silence of immensity, and under the eye of heaven? Now this solitude was peopled with his thoughts, the night lighted up by his illusions, and the silence animated by his anticipations. When the patron awoke, the vessel was hurrying on with every sail set, and every sail full with the breeze. They were making nearly ten knots an hour. The island of Monte Cristo loomed large in the horizon. Edmond resigned the lugger to the master's care, and went and lay down in his hammock. But in spite of a sleepless night, he could not close his eyes for a moment. Two hours afterwards he came on deck as the boat was about to double the island of Elba. They were just abreast of Maracciano, and beyond the flat but verdant island of La Pianosa. 
the peak of Monte Cristo, reddened by the burning sun, was seen against the Asia sky. Dante ordered the helmsman to put down his helm in order to leave La Pianosa to starboard, as he knew that he should shorten his course by two or three knots. About five o'clock in the evening, the island was distinct, and everything on it was plainly perceptible, owing to that clearness of the atmosphere peculiar to the light which the rays of the sun cast at its setting. Edmond gazed very earnestly at the mass of rocks which gave out all the variety of twilight colours, from the brightest pink to the deepest blue, and from time to time his cheeks flushed, his brow darkened, and a mist passed over his eyes. Never did a gamester, whose whole fortune is staked on one cast of the die, experience the anguish which Edmond felt in his paroxysms of hope. Night came, and at ten o'clock they anchored. The young Amelia was first at the rendezvous. In spite of his usual command over himself, Dante could not restrain his impetuosity. He was the first to jump on shore, and had he dared, he would, like Lucius Brutus, have kissed his mother earth. It was dark, but at eleven o'clock the moon rose in the midst of the ocean, whose every wave she silvered, and then, ascending high, played in floods of pale light on the rocky hills of this second Pelion. The island was familiar to the crew of the young Amelia. It was one of her regular haunts. As to Dante, he had passed it on his voyage to and from the Levant, but never touched at it. He questioned Jacopo. Where shall we pass the night? he inquired. Why, on board of the tartan, replied the sailor. Should we not do better in the grotto? What grottoes? Why, the grotto, cave of the island. I do not know of any grottoes, replied Jacopo. The cold sweat sprang forth on Dante's brow. What? Are there no grotto at Monte Cristo? he asked. None! For a moment Dante was speechless. Then he remembered that these caves might have been filled up by some accident or even stopped up for the sake of greater security by Cardinal Spada. The point was then to discover the hidden entrance. It was useless to search at night, and Dante therefore delayed all investigation until the morning. Besides, a signal made half a league out at sea, and to which the young Amelia replied by a similar signal, indicated that the moment for business had come. The boat that now arrived, assured by the answering signal that all was well, soon came in sight, white and silent as a phantom, and cast anchor within a cable's length of shore. Then the landing began. Dante reflected as he worked on the shout of joy which, with a single word, he could evoke from all these men if he gave utterance to the one unchanging thought that pervaded his heart. But far from disclosing this precious secret, he almost feared that he had already said too much, and by his restlessness and continual questions, his minute observations and evident preoccupation aroused suspicions. Fortunately, as regarded this circumstance at least, his painful past gave to his countenance an indelible sadness, and the glimmerings of gaiety seen beneath this cloud were indeed but transitory. No one had the slightest suspicion. And when next day, taking a fowling piece, powder and shot, Dante declared his intention to go and kill some of the wild goats that were seen springing from rock to rock, his wish was construed into a love of sport, or a desire for solitude. 
However, Jacopo insisted on following him, and Dante did not oppose this, fearing if he did so that he might incur distrust. Scarcely, however, had they gone a quarter of a league when, having killed a kid, he begged Jacopo to take it to his comrades and request them to cook it, and when ready to let him know by firing a gun. This and some dried fruits and a flask of Monte Pulciano was the bill of fare. Dante went on, looking from time to time behind and around him. Having reached the summit of a rock, he saw a thousand feet beneath him his companions, whom Jacopo had rejoined, and who were all busy preparing the repast which Edmond's skill as a marksman had augmented with a capital dish. Edmund looked at them for a moment with the sad and gentle smile of a man superior to his fellows. In two hours' time, said he, these persons will depart richer by fifty piastres each to go and risk their lives again by endeavouring to gain fifty more. Then they will return with a fortune of six hundred francs and waste this treasure in some city with the pride of sultans and the insolence of nabobs. At this moment, hope makes me despise their riches, which seem to me contemptible. Yet perchance tomorrow deception will so act on me that I shall on compulsion and consider such a contemptible possession as the utmost happiness. Oh no, exclaimed Edmond, that will not be. The wise, unerring Faria could not be mistaken in this one thing. Besides, it were better to die than to continue to lead this low and wretched life. Thus Dante, who but three months before had no desire but liberty, had now not liberty enough, and panted for wealth. The cause was not in Dante, but in Providence, who, while limiting the power of man, has filled him with boundless desires. Meanwhile, by a cleft between two walls of rock, following a path worn by a torrent, and which, in all human probability, human foot had never before trod, Dante approached the spot where he supposed the grottoes must have existed. Keeping along the shore, and examining the smallest object with serious attention, he thought he could trace on certain rocks marks made by the hand of man. Time, which encrusts all physical substances with its mossy mantle, as it invests all things of the mind with forgetfulness, seemed to have respected these signs, which apparently had been made with some degree of regularity, and probably with a definite purpose. Occasionally, the marks were hidden under tufts of myrtle, which spread into large bushes, laden with blossoms or beneath parasitical lichen. So Edmund had to separate the branches, or brush away the moss, to know where the guide marks were. The sight of marks renewed Edmond's fondest hopes. Might it not have been the cardinal himself who had first traced them, in order that they might serve as a guide for his nephew in the event of a catastrophe, which he could not foresee would have been so complete? This solitary place was precisely suited to the requirements of a man desirous of burying treasure. Only, might not these betraying marks have attracted other eyes than those for whom they were made? And had the dark and wondrous island indeed faithfully guarded its precious secret? It seemed, however, to Edmond, who was hidden from his comrades by the inequalities of the ground, that at sixty paces from the harbour the mark ceased. Nor did they terminate at any grotto. A large round rock, placed solidly on its base, was the only spot to which they seemed to lead. 
Edmond concluded that perhaps instead of having reached the end of the route, he had only explored its beginning, and he therefore turned round and retraced his steps. Meanwhile, his comrades had prepared the repast, had got some water from a spring, spread out the fruit and bread, and cooked the kid. Just at the moment when they were taking the dainty animal from the spit, they saw Edmond springing with the boldness of a chamois from rock to rock, and they fired the signal agreed upon. The sportsman instantly changed his direction and ran quickly towards them, but even while they watched his daring progress, Edmund's foot slipped and they saw him stagger on the edge of a rock and disappear. They all rushed towards him, for all loved Edmond in spite of his superiority, yet Jacopo reached him first. He found Edmond lying prone, bleeding and almost senseless. He had rolled down a declivity of twelve or fifteen feet. They poured a little rum down his throat, and his remedy, which had before been so beneficial to him, produced the same effect as formerly. Edmond opened his eyes, complained of great pain in his knee, a feeling of heaviness in his head, and severe pains in his loins. They wished to carry him to the shore, but when they touched him, although under Jacopo's directions, he declared with heavy groans that he could not bear to be moved. It may be supposed that Dante did not now think of his dinner, but he insisted that his comrades, who had not his reasons for fasting, should have their meal. As for himself, he declared that he had only need of a little rest, and that when they returned, he should be easier. The sailors did not require much urging. They were hungry, and the smell of the roasted kid was very savoury, and your tars are not very ceremonious. An hour afterwards they returned. All that Edmond had been able to do was to drag himself about a dozen paces forward to lean against a moss-grown rock. But instead of growing easier, Dante's pains appeared to increase in violence. The old patron, who was obliged to sail in the morning in order to land his cargo on the frontiers of Piedmont and France, between Nice and Fréjus, urged Dante to try and rise. <clears throat> Edmond made great exertions in order to comply, but at each effort he fell back, moaning and turning pale. "'He has broken his ribs,' said the commander in a low voice. "'No matter, he is an excellent fellow.' and we must not leave him. We will try and carry him on board the tartan. Dante declared, however, that he would rather die where he was than undergo the agony which the slightest movement cost him. Well, said the patron, let what may happen. It shall never be said that we deserted a good comrade like you. We will not go till evening. This very much astonished the sailors, although not one opposed it. The patron was so strict that this was the first time they had ever seen him give up an enterprise, or even delay in its execution. Dante would not allow that any such infraction of regular and proper rules should be made in his favour. No, no, he said to the patron. I was awkward, and it is just that I pay the penalty of my clumsiness. Leave me a small supply of biscuit, a gun, powder, and balls to kill the kids or defend myself at need and a pickaxe, that I may build a shelter, if you delay in coming back for me. But you die of hunger, said the patron. I would rather do so, was Edmond's reply, than suffer the inexpressible agonies which the slightest movement causes me. The patron turned towards his vessel, which was rolling on the swell in the little harbour, 
and with sails partly set, would be ready for sea when her toilet should be completed. "'What are we to do, Maltese?' asked the captain. "'We cannot leave you here so, and yet we cannot stay.' "'Go, go,' exclaimed Dante. "'We shall be absent at least a week,' said the patron. "'And then we must run out of our course to come here and take you up again.' "'Why?' said Dante. "'If in two or three days you hail any fishing-boat, "'desire them to come here to me. "'I will pay twenty-five piastres for my passage back to Leghorn. "'If you do not come across one, return for me.' "'The patron shook his head. "'Listen, Captain Baldi! "'There's one way of settling this,' said Jacopo. "'Do you go, and I will stay and take care of the wounded man.' "'And give up your share of the venture?' said Edmond. "'To remain with me?' "'Yes,' said Jacopo, "'and without any hesitation.' "'You are a good fellow, and a kind-hearted messmate,' replied Edmond, "'and heaven will recompense you for your generous intentions. "'But I do not wish anyone to stay with me. "'A day or two of rest will set me up, "'and I hope I shall find among the rocks,' certain herbs most excellent for bruises. A peculiar smile passed over Dante's lips. He squeezed Jacopo's hand warmly, but nothing could shake his determination to remain, and remain alone. The smugglers left with Edmond what he had requested and set sail, but not without turning about several times and each time making signs of a cordial farewell, to which Edmond replied with his hand only as if he could not move the rest of his body. Then, when they had disappeared, he said with a smile, "'It is strange that it should be among such men that we find proofs of friendship and devotion.' Then he dragged himself cautiously to the top of a rock, from which he had full view of the sea, and thence he saw the tartan complete her preparations for sailing, weigh anchor, and, balancing herself as gracefully as a waterfowl ere it takes to the wing, set sail. At the end of an hour she was completely out of sight. At least it was impossible for the wounded man to see her any longer from the spot where he was. Then Dante rose more agile and light than the kid among the myrtles and shrubs of those wild rocks, took his gun in one hand, his pickaxe in the other, and hastened toward the rock on which the marks he had noted terminated. "'And now,' he exclaimed, remembering the tale of the Arabian fisherman which Faria had related to him, "'Now, open the sesame!' End of chapter 23「Chapter 24.' of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 24. The Secret Cave. The sun had nearly reached the meridian, and his scorching rays fell full on the rocks, which seemed themselves sensible of the heat. Thousands of grasshoppers, hidden in the bushes, chirped with a monotonous and dull note. The leaves of the myrtle and olive trees waved and rustled in the wind, at every step that Edmond took he disturbed the lizards glittering with the hues of the emerald. Afar off he saw the wild goats bounding from crag to crag. In a word, 
the island was inhabited, yet Edmond felt himself alone, guided by the hand of God. He felt an indescribable sensation, somewhat akin to dread, that dread of the daylight which even in the desert makes us fear we are watched and observed. This feeling was so strong that at the moment when Edmond was about to begin his labour, he stopped, laid down his pickaxe, seized his gun, mounted to the summit of the highest rock, and from thence gazed round in every direction. But it was not upon Corsica, the very houses of which he could distinguish, or on Sardinia, or on the island of Elba, with its historical associations, or upon the almost imperceptible line that to the experienced eye of a sailor alone revealed the coast of Genoa the proud, and Leghorn the commercial, that he gazed. It was at the brigantine that had left in the morning, and the tartan that had just set sail, that Edmond fixed his eyes. The first was just disappearing in the straits of Bonifacio, the other, following in opposite direction, was about to round the island of Corsica. This sight reassured him. He then looked at the objects near him. He saw that he was on the highest point of the island, a statue on this vast pedestal of granite, nothing human appearing in sight, while the blue ocean beat against the base of the island and covered it with a fringe of foam. Then he descended with cautious and slow step, for he dreaded lest an accident similar to that he had so adroitly feigned should happen in reality. Dante, as we have said, had traced the marks along the rocks, and he had noticed that they led to a small creek, which was hidden like the bath of some ancient nymph. This creek was sufficiently wide at its mouth, and deep in the centre, to admit of the entrance of a small vessel of the lugger class, which would be perfectly concealed from observation. Then, following the clue that in the hands of the Abbe Faria had been so skilfully used to guide him through the Daedalian labyrinth of probabilities, he thought that the Cardinal Spada, anxious not to be watched, had entered the creek, concealed his little bark, followed the line marked by the notches in the rock, and at the end of it had buried his treasure. It was this idea that had brought Dante back to the circular rock, one thing only perplexed Edmond, and destroyed his theory. How could this rock, which weighed several tons, have been lifted to this spot, without the aid of many men? Suddenly, an idea flashed across his mind. Instead of raising it, thought he, they have lowered it. And he sprang from the rock in order to inspect the base on which it had formerly stood. He soon perceived that a slope had been formed, and the rock had slid along this until it stopped at the spot it now occupied. A large stone had served as a wedge. Flints and pebbles had been inserted around it so as to conceal the orifice. This species of masonry had been covered with earth and grass and weeds had grown there. Moss had clung to the stones, myrtle bushes had taken root, and the old rock seemed fixed to the earth. Dante dug away the earth carefully, and detected, or at least fancied he detected, the ingenious artifice. He attacked this wall, cemented by the hand of time, with his pickaxe. After ten minutes' labour, the wall gave way, and a hole large enough to insert the arm was opened. Dante went and cut the strongest olive tree he could find, stripped off its branches, inserted it in the hole, and used it as a lever. But the rock was too heavy, and too firmly wedged to be moved by any one man, were he Hercules himself. 
Dante saw that he must attack the wedge. But how? He cast his eyes around and saw the horn full of powder which his friend Jacopo had left him. He smiled. The infernal invention would serve him for this purpose. With the aid of his pickaxe, Dante, after the manner of a labour-saving pioneer, dug a mine between the upper rock and the one that supported it, filled it with powder, then made a match by rolling his handkerchief in saltpetre. He lighted it and retired. The explosion soon followed. The upper rock was lifted from its base by the terrific force of the powder. The lower one flew into pieces. Thousands of insects escaped from the aperture Dante had previously formed, and a huge snake, like the guardian demon of the treasure, rolled himself along in darkening coils and disappeared. Dante approached the upper rock, which now, without any support, leaned towards the sea. The intrepid treasure-seeker walked around it, and selecting the spot from whence it appeared most susceptible to attack, placed his lever in one of the crevices, and strained every nerve to move the mass. The rock, already shaken by the explosion, tottered on its base. Dante redoubled his efforts. He seemed like one of the ancient titans who uprooted the mountains to hurl against the father of the gods. The rock yielded, rolled over, bounded from point to point, and finally disappeared in the ocean. On the spot it had occupied was a circular space, exposing an iron ring let into a square flagstone. Dante uttered a cry of joy and surprise. Never had a first attempt been crowned with more perfect success. He would fain have continued, but his knees trembled and his heart beat so violently and his sight became so dim that he was forced to pause. This feeling lasted but for a moment. Edmond inserted his lever in the ring and exerted all his strength. The flagstone yielded and disclosed steps that descended until they were lost in the obscurity of a subterraneous grotto. Anyone else would have rushed on with a cry of joy. Dante turned pale, hesitated, and reflected. Come, said he to himself, be a man. I am accustomed to adversity. I must not be cast down by the discovery that I have been deceived. What then would be the use of all I have suffered? The heart breaks when, after having been elated by flattering hopes, it sees all its illusions destroyed. Faria has dreamed this. The Cardinal Spada buried no treasure here, but perhaps he never came here, or if he did, César Borgia, the intrepid adventurer, the stealthy and indefatigable plunderer, has followed him, discovered his traces, pursued them as I have done, raised the stone, and descending before me, has left me nothing. He remained motionless and pensive, his eyes fixed on the gloomy aperture that was open at his feet. Now that I expect nothing, now that I no longer entertain the slightest hopes, the end of this adventure becomes simply a matter of curiosity. And he remained again motionless and thoughtful. Yes, yes, this is an adventure worthy a place in the varied career of that royal bandit. This fabulous event formed but a link in a long chain of marvels. Yes, Borgia has been here, a torch in one hand, a sword in the other, and within twenty paces, at the foot of this rock, perhaps two guards kept watch on land and sea while their master descended, as I am about to descend, dispelling the darkness before his awe-inspiring progress. 
But what was the fate of the gods who thus possessed his secret? asked Dante of himself. The fate, replied he, smiling, of those who buried Alarich. Yet he had come, thought Dante. He would have found the treasure, and Borgia, he would have compared Italy to an artichoke, which he would devour leaf by leaf, knew too well the value of time to waste it in replacing this rock. I will go down. Then he descended, a smile on his lips, and murmuring that last word of human philosophy. Perhaps. But instead of the darkness and the thick and mephitic atmosphere he had expected to find, Dante saw a dim and bluish light, which as well as the air entered not merely by the aperture he had just formed, but by the interstices and crevices of the rock which were visible from without, and through which he could distinguish the blue sky and the waving branches of the evergreen oaks and the tendrils of the creepers that grew from the rocks. After having stood a few minutes in the cavern, the atmosphere of which was rather warm than damp, Dante's eyes, habituated as it was to darkness, could pierce even to the remotest angles of the cavern, which was of granite that sparkled like diamonds. Alas, said Edmond, smiling, these are the treasures the cardinal has left, and the good abbe, seeing in a dream these glittering walls, has indulged in fallacious hopes. But he called to mind the words of the will which he knew by heart. In the farthest angle of the second opening, said the cardinal's will, he had only found the first grotto. He had now to seek the second. Dante continued his search. He reflected that his second grotto must penetrate deeper into the island. He examined the stones and sounded one part of the wall where he fancied the opening existed, masked for precaution's sake. The pickaxe struck for a moment with a dull sound that drew out of Dante's forehead large drops of perspiration. At last it seemed to him that one part of the wall gave forth a more hollow and deeper echo. He eagerly advanced and with the quickness of perception that no one but a prisoner possesses, saw that there, in all probability, the opening must be. However, he, like César Borgia, knew the value of time, and in order to avoid fruitless toil, he sounded all the other walls with his pickaxe, struck the earth with the butt of his gun, and finding nothing that appeared suspicious, returned to that part of the wall whence issued the consoling sound he had before heard. He again struck it, and with greater force. Then a singular thing occurred. As he struck the wall, pieces of stucco similar to that used in the groundwork of arabesques broke off and fell to the ground in flakes, exposing a large white stone. The aperture of the rock had been closed with stones. Then this stucco had been applied and painted to imitate granite. Dante struck with the sharp end of his pickaxe, which entered somewhere between the interstices. It was there he must dig. But by some strange play of emotion, in proportion as the proofs that Faria had not been deceived became stronger, so did his heart give way, and a feeling of discouragement stole over him. This last proof, instead of giving him fresh strength, deprived him of it. The pickaxe descended, or rather fell. He placed it on the ground, passed his hand over his brow, and remounted the stairs, alleging to himself as an excuse a desire to be assured that no one was watching him, but in reality because he felt that he was about to faint. The island was deserted. 
and the sun seemed to cover it with its fiery glance. Afar off, a few small fishing boats studied the bosom of the blue ocean. Dante had tasted nothing, but he thought not of hunger at such a moment. He hastily swallowed a few drops of rum and again entered the cavern. The pickaxe that had seemed so heavy was now like a feather in his grasp. He seized it and attacked the wall. After several blows, he perceived that the stones were not cemented, but had been merely placed one upon the other and covered with stucco. He inserted the point of his pickaxe and, using the handle as a lever, with joy soon saw the stone turn as if on hinges and fall at his feet. He had nothing more to do now, but with the iron tooth of the pickaxe to draw the stones towards him one by one. The aperture was already sufficiently large for him to enter, but by waiting he could still cling to hope and retard the certainty of deception. At last, after renewed hesitation, Dante entered the second grotto. The second grotto was lower and more gloomy than the first. The air that could only enter by the newly formed opening had the mephitic smell Dante was surprised not to find in the outer cavern. He waited in order to allow pure air to displace the foul atmosphere, and then went on. At the left of the opening was a dark and deep angle, but to Dante's eyes there was no darkness. He glanced around his second grotto. It was like the first, empty. The treasure, if it existed, was buried in this corner. The time had at length arrived. Two feet of earth removed, and Dante's fate would be decided. He advanced toward the angle, and summoning all his resolution, attacked the ground with the pickaxe. At the fifth or sixth blow, the pickaxe struck against an iron substance. Never did funeral knell, never did alarm bell, produce a greater effect on the hearer. Had Dante found nothing, he could not have become more ghastly pale. He again struck his pickaxe into the earth, and encountered the same resistance, but not the same sound. It is a casket of wood, bound with iron, thought he. At this moment a shadow passed rapidly before the opening. Dante seized his gun, sprang through the opening, and mounted the stair. A wild goat had passed before the mouth of the cave, and was feeding at a little distance. This would have been a favourable occasion to secure his dinner, but Dante feared lest the report of his gun should attract attention. He thought a moment, cut a branch of a resinous tree, lighted it at the fire at which the smugglers had prepared their breakfast, and descended with this torch. He wished to see everything. He approached the hole he had dug, and now, with the aid of the torch, saw that his pickaxe had in reality struck against iron and wood. He planted his torch in the ground and resumed his labour. In an instant, a space three feet long by two feet broad was cleared, and Dante could see an oaken coffer, bound with cut steel. In the middle of the lid he saw engraved on a silver plate which was still untarnished, the arms of the Spada family, viz. a sword, pale, on an oval shield like all the Italian armorial bearings, and surmounted by a cardinal's hat. Dante easily recognised them. Faria had so often drawn them for him. There was no longer any doubt. The treasure was there. No one would have been at such pains to conceal an empty casket. In an instant he had cleared every obstacle away, and he saw successively the lock placed between two padlocks and the two handles at each end. 
all carved as things were carved at that epoch, when art rendered the commonest metals precious. Dante seized the handles and strove to lift the coffer. It was impossible. He sought to open it. Lock and padlock were fastened. These faithful guardians seemed unwilling to surrender their trust. Dante inserted the sharp end of the pickaxe between the coffer and the lid, and pressing with all his force on the handle, burst open the fastenings. The hinges yielded in their turn and fell, still holding in their grasp fragments of the wood, and the chest was open. Edmond was seized with vertigo. He cocked his gun and laid it beside him. He then closed his eyes as children do in order that they may see in the resplendent night of their own imagination more stars than are visible in the firmament. Then he reopened them and stood motionless with amazement. Three compartments divided the coffer. In the first blazed piles of golden coin. In the second were ranged bars of unpolished gold which possessed nothing attractive save their value. In the third... Edmund grasped handfuls of diamonds, pearls, and rubies, which as they fell on one another sounded like hail against the glass. After having touched, felt, examined these treasures, Edmund rushed through the caverns like a man seized with frenzy. He leapt on a rock from whence he could behold the sea. He was alone, alone with these countless, these unheard-of treasures. Was he awake, or was it but a dream? He would have fain have gazed upon his gold, and yet he had not strength enough. For an instant he leaned his head in his hands as if to prevent his senses from leaving him, and then rushed madly about the rocks of Monte Cristo, terrifying the wild goats and scaring the sea-fowls with his wild cries and gestures. Then he returned, and still unable to believe the evidence of his senses, rushed into the grotto, and found himself before this mine of gold and jewels. This time... He fell on his knees, and clasping his hands convulsively, uttered a prayer intelligible to God alone. He soon became calmer and more happy, for only now did he begin to realise his felicity. He then set himself to work to count his fortune. There were a thousand ingots of gold, each weighing from two to three pounds. Then he piled up twenty-five thousand crowns, each worth about eighty francs of our money, and bearing the effigies of Alexander the Sixth and his predecessors. And he saw that the complement was not half empty, and he measured ten double handfuls of pearls, diamonds, and other gems, many of which, mounted by the most famous workmen, were valuable beyond their intrinsic worth. Dante saw the light gradually disappear, and fearing to be surprised in the cavern, left it, his gun in his hand, a piece of biscuit and a small quantity of rum formed his supper, and he snatched a few hours' sleep, lying over the mouth of the cave. It was a night of joy and terror, such as this man of stupendous emotions had already experienced, twice or thrice in his lifetime. End of chapter 24
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 25 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 25 The Unknown. Day, for which Dante had so eagerly and impatiently awaited with open eyes, again dawned. With the first light, Dante resumed his search. Again he climbed the rocky height he had ascended the previous evening and strained his view to catch every peculiarity of the landscape. But it wore the same wild, barren aspect when seen by the rays of the morning sun, which it had done when surveyed by the fading glimmer of eve. Descending into the grotto, he lifted the stone, filled his pockets with gems, put the box together as well and securely as he could, sprinkled fresh sand over the spot from which it had been taken, and then carefully trod down the earth to give it everywhere a uniform appearance. Then, quitting the grotto, he replaced the stone, heaping on it broken masses of rocks and rough fragments of crumbling granite, filling the interstices with earth into which he deftly inserted rapidly growing plants, such as the wild myrtle and flowering thorn. Then, carefully watering these new plantations, he scrupulously effaced every trace of footsteps leaving the approach to the cavern as savage-looking and untrodden as he had found it. This done, he impatiently awaited the return of his companions. To wait at Monte Cristo for the purpose of watching like a dragon over the almost incalculable riches that had thus fallen into his possession satisfied not the cravings of his heart, which yearned to return to dwell among mankind, and to assume the rank power and influence which are always accorded to wealth, that first and greatest of all the forces within the grasp of man. On the sixth day, the smugglers returned. From a distance, Dante recognised the rig and handling of the young Amelia, and dragging himself with affected difficulty towards the landing place, he met his companions, with an assurance that, although considerably better than when they quitted him, he still suffered acutely from his late accident. He then inquired how they had fared in their trip. To this question, the smugglers replied that, although successful in landing their cargo in safety, they had scarcely done so when they received intelligence that a guard ship had just quitted the port of Toulon and was crowding all sail towards them. This obliged them to make all speed they could to evade the enemy, when they could but lament the absence of Dante, whose superior skill in the management of a vessel would have availed them so materially. In fact, the pursuing vessel had almost overtaken them when fortunately night came on and enabled them to double the Cape of Corsica and so elude all further pursuit. Upon the whole, however, the trip had been sufficiently successful to satisfy all concerned, while the crew, and particularly Jacopo, expressed great regrets that Dante had not been an equal sharer with themselves in the profits, which amounted to no less than a sum than fifty piastre each. 
Edmund preserved the most admirable self-command, not suffering the faintest indication of a smile to escape him at the enumeration of all the benefits he would have reaped had he been able to quit the island. But as the young Amelia had merely come to Monte Cristo to fetch him away, he embarked that same evening and proceeded with the captain to Leghorn. Arrived at Leghorn, he repaired to the house of a Jew, a dealer in precious stones, to whom he disposed of four of his smallest diamonds for five thousand francs each. Dante half feared that such valuable jewels in the hands of a poor sailor like himself might excite suspicion, but the cunning purchaser asked no troublesome questions concerning a bargain by which he gained a round profit of at least eighty per cent. The following day, Dante presented Jacopo with an entirely new vessel, accompanying the gift by a donation of one hundred piastres that he might provide himself with a suitable crew and other requisites for his outfit, upon condition that he would go at once to Marseille for the purpose of inquiring after an old man named Louis Dante, residing in the Allée de Meillon, and also a young woman called Mercedes, an inhabitant of the Catalan village. Jacopo could scarcely believe his senses at receiving this magnificent present, which Dante hastened to account for by saying that he had merely been a sailor from whim and a desire to spite his family, who did not allow him as much money as he liked to spend, but that on his arrival at Leghorn he had come into possession of a large fortune left him by an uncle whose sole heir he was. The superior education of Dante gave an air of such extreme probability to this statement that it never once occurred to Jacopo to doubt its accuracy. The term for which Edmond had engaged to serve on board the young Amelia having expired, Dante took leave of the captain, who at first tried all his powers of persuasion to induce him to remain as one of the crew. But having been told the history of the legacy, he ceased to importune him further. The following morning, Jacopo set sail for Marseille, with directions from Dante to join him at the island of Monte Cristo. Having seen Jacopo fairly out of the harbour, Dante proceeded to make his final adieu on board the young Amelia, distributing so liberal a gratuity among her crew as to secure for him the good wishes of all, and expressions of cordial interest in all that concerned him. To the captain, he promised to write when he had made up his mind as to his future plans. Then Dante departed for Genoa. At the moment of his arrival, a small yacht was under trial in the bay. This yacht had been built by order of an Englishman, who, having heard that the Genoese excelled all other builders along the shores of the Mediterranean in construction of fast-sailing vessels, was desirous of possessing a specimen of their skill. The price agreed upon between the Englishman and the Genoese builder was 40,000 francs. Dante, struck with the beauty and capability of the little vessel, applied to its owner to transfer it to him, offering 60,000 francs upon condition that he should be allowed to take immediate possession. The proposal was too advantageous to be refused, the more so as the person for whom the yacht was intended had gone upon a tour through Switzerland and was not expected back in less than three weeks or a month, by which time the builder reckoned upon being able to complete another. A bargain was therefore struck. Dante led the owner of the yacht to the dwelling of a Jew, retired with the latter for a few minutes to a small black-backed parlour, 
and upon their return the Jew counted out to the shipbuilder the sum of sixty thousand francs in bright gold pieces. The delighted builder then offered his services in providing a suitable crew for the little vessel. But this Dante declined with many thanks, saying he was accustomed to cruise about quite alone, and his principal pleasure consisted in managing his yacht himself. The only thing the builder could oblige him in would be to contrive a sort of secret closet in the cabin at his bed's head, the closet to contain three divisions, so constructed as to be concealed from all but himself. The builder cheerfully undertook the commission, and promised to have these secret places completed by the next day. Dante furnishing the dimensions and plan in accordance with which they were to be constructed. The following day, Dante sailed with his yacht from Genoa, under the inspection of an immense crowd, drawn together by curiosity to see the rich Spanish nobleman who preferred managing his own yacht. But their wonder was soon changed to admiration at seeing the perfect skill with which Dante handled the helm. The boat indeed seemed to be animated with almost human intelligence, so promptly did it obey the slightest touch. And Dante required but a short trial of his beautiful craft to acknowledge that the Genoese had not without reason attained their high reputation in the art of shipbuilding. The spectators followed the little vessel with their eyes as long as it remained visible. They then turned their conjectures upon her probable destination. Some insisted she was making for Corsica, others the island of Elba. Bets were offered to any amount that she was bound for Spain, while Africa was positively reported by many persons as her intended course. But no one thought of Monte Cristo. Yet thither it was that Dante guided his vessel, and at Monte Cristo he arrived at the close of the second day. His boat had proved herself a first-class sailor, and had come the distance from Genoa in thirty-five hours. Dante had carefully noted the general appearance of the shore, and instead of landing at the usual place, he dropped anchor in the little creek. The island was utterly deserted, and bore no evidence of having been visited since he went away. His treasure was just as he had left it. Early on the following morning he commenced the removal of his riches, and ere nightfall the whole of his immense wealth was safely deposited in the compartments of the secret locker. A week passed by. Dante employed it in manoeuvring his yacht around the island, studying it as a skilful horseman would the animal he destined for some important service, till at the end of that time he was perfectly conversant with its good and bad qualities. The former Dante proposed to augment, the latter to remedy. Upon the eighth day, he discerned a small vessel under full sail approaching Monte Cristo. As it drew near, he recognized it as the boat he had given to Jacopo. He immediately signaled it. His signal was returned, and in two hours afterwards the newcomer lay at anchor beside the yacht. A mournful answer awaited each of Edmond's eager inquiries as to the information Jacopo had obtained. Old Dante was dead, and Mercedes had disappeared. Dante listened to these melancholy tidings with outward calmness, but leaping lightly ashore he signified his desire to be quite alone. In a couple of hours he returned. Two of the men from Jacopo's boat came on board the yacht to assist in navigating it, and he gave orders that she should be steered direct to Marseille. For his father's death he was in some manner prepared, 
but he knew not how to account for the mysterious disappearance of Mercedes. Without divulging his secret, Dante could not give sufficiently clear instructions to an agent. There were, besides, other particulars he was desirous of ascertaining, and those were of a nature he alone could investigate, in a manner satisfactory to himself. His looking-glass had assured him during his stay at Leghorn that he ran no risk of recognition. Moreover, he had now the means of adopting any disguise he thought proper. One fine morning, then, his yacht, followed by the little fishing-boat, boldly entered the port of Marseille, and anchored exactly opposite the spot, from whence on the never-to-be-forgotten night of his departure for the Chateau d'If, he had been put on board the boat destined to convey him thither. Still Dante could not view without a shudder the approach of a gendarme who accompanied the officers deputed to demand his bill of health ere the yacht was permitted to hold communication with the shore. But with that perfect self-possession he had acquired during his acquaintance with Faria, Dante coolly presented an English passport he had obtained from Leghorn, and as this gave him a standing which a French passport would not have afforded, he was informed that there existed no obstacle to his immediate debarkation. The first person to attract the attention of Dante as he landed on the Canabière was one of the crew belonging to the Ferroan. Edmond welcomed the meeting with this fellow, who had been one of his own sailors, as a sure means of testing the extent of the change which time had worked in his own appearance. Going straight towards him, he propounded a variety of questions on different subjects, carefully watching the man's countenance as he did so, but not a word or look implied that he had the slightest idea of ever having seen before the person with whom he was conversing. Giving the sailor a piece of money in return for his civility, Dante proceeded onwards, but ere he had gone many steps he heard the man loudly calling him to stop. Dante instantly turned to meet him. I beg your pardon, sir, said the honest fellow in almost breathless haste, but I believe you made a mistake. You intended to give me a two-franc piece, and see, you gave me a double Napoleon. Thank you, my good friend. I see that I have made a trifling mistake, as you say. But by way of rewarding your honesty, I give you another double Napoleon, that you may drink to my health, and be able to ask your messmates to join you. So extreme was the surprise of the sailor that he was unable even to thank Edmond, whose receding figure he continued to gaze after in speechless astonishment. Some nebob from India, was his comment. Dante, meanwhile, went on his way. Each step he trod oppressed his heart with fresh emotion. His first and most indelible recollections were there. Not a tree, not a street that he passed, but seemed filled with dear and cherished memories, and thus he proceeded onwards till he arrived at the end of the Rue de Noailles, from whence a full view of the Allée de Meillon was obtained. At this spot, so pregnant with fond and filial remembrances, his heart beat almost to bursting. His knees tottered under him, a mist floated over his sight, and had he not clung for support to one of the trees, he would inevitably have fallen to the ground and been crushed beneath the many vehicles continually passing there. Recovering himself, however, he wiped the perspiration from his brows and stopped not again till he found himself at the door of the house in which his father had lived. 
The nasturtiums and other plants which his father had delighted to train before his window had all disappeared from the upper part of the house. Leaning against a tree, he gazed thoughtfully for a time at the upper stories of the shabby little house. Then he advanced to the door and asked whether there were any rooms to be let. Though answered in the negative, he begged so earnestly to be permitted to visit those on the fifth floor that, in despite of the oft-repeated assurance of the concierge that they were occupied, Dante succeeded in inducing the man to go up to the tenants and ask permission for a gentleman to be allowed to look at them. The tenants of the humble lodging were a young couple who had been scarcely married a week, and seeing them, Dante sighed heavily. Nothing in the two small chambers forming the apartments remained as it had been in the time of the elder Dante. The very paper was different, while the articles of antiquated furniture with which the rooms had been filled in Edmond's time had all disappeared. The four walls alone remained as he had left them. The bed, belonging to the present occupants, was placed as the former owner of the chamber had been accustomed to have his, and in despite of his efforts to prevent it, the eyes of Edmond were suffused in tears as he reflected that on that spot the old man had breathed his last, vainly calling for his son. The young couple gazed with astonishment at the sight of their visitor's emotion and wondered to see the large tears silently chasing each other down his otherwise stern and immovable features. But they felt the sacredness of his grief and kindly refrained from questioning him as to its cause, while with instinctive delicacy they left him to indulge his sorrow alone. When he withdrew from the scene of his painful recollections, they both accompanied him downstairs, reiterating their hope that he would come again whenever he pleased, and assuring him that their poor dwelling would ever be open to him. As Edmond passed the door on the fourth floor, he paused to inquire whether Caderousse, the tailor, still dwelt there, but he received for reply that the person in question had got into difficulties and at the present time kept a small inn on the route from Bellegarde to Beaucaire. Having obtained the address of the person to whom the house in the Allée de Meillon belonged, Dante next proceeded thither, and under the name of the Lord Wilmore, the name and title inscribed on his passport, purchased the small dwelling for the sum of 25,000 francs, at least 10,000 more than it was worth. But had its owner asked half a million, it would unhesitatingly have been given. The very same day, the occupants of the apartments on the fifth floor of the house now became the property of Dante, were duly informed by the notary, who had arranged the necessary transfer of deeds, etc., that the new landlord gave them their choice of any of the rooms in the house without the least augmentation of rent, upon condition of their giving instant possession of the two small chambers they at present inhabited. This strange event aroused great wonder and curiosity in the neighbourhood of the Allée de Meillon, and a multitude of theories were afloat, none of which was anywhere near the truth. But what raised public astonishment to a climax, and set all conjecture at defiance, was the knowledge that the same stranger, who had in the morning visited the Allée de Meillon, had been seen in the evening walking in the little village of the Catalan, and afterwards observed to enter a poor fisherman's hut, and to pass more than an hour in inquiring after persons who had either been dead or gone away for more than fifteen or sixteen years. 
But on the following day, the family from whom all these particulars had been asked received a handsome present, consisting of an entirely new fishing boat with two sen and a tender. The delighted recipients of these munificent gifts would gladly have poured out their thanks to their generous benefactor, but they had seen him, upon quitting the hut, merely give some orders to a sailor and then, springing lightly on horseback, leave Marseille by the Port Dix. End of chapter 25「ポート・デックス」by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 26. The Pont du Gard Inn. Such of my readers as have made a pedestrian excursion to the south of France may perchance have noticed, about midway between the town of Beaucaire and the village of Bellegarde, a little nearer to the former than to the latter, a small roadside inn from the front of which hung creaking and flapping in the wind a sheet of tin covered with a grotesque representation of the Pont du Gard. This modern place of entertainment stood on the left-hand side of the post-road and backed upon the Rhône. It also boasted of what in Languedoc is styled a garden, consisting of a small plot of ground on the side opposite to the main entrance reserved for the reception of guests. A few dingy olives and stunted fig trees struggled hard for existence, but their withered, dusty foliage abundantly proved how unequal was the conflict. Between these sickly shrubs grew a scanty supply of garlic, tomatoes, and échalot, while, lone and solitary, like a forgotten sentinel, a tall pine raised its melancholy head in one of the corners of this unattractive spot, and displayed its flexible stem and fan-shaped summit dried and cracked by the fierce heat of the subtropical sun. In the surrounding plain, which more resembled a dusty lake than solid ground, were scattered a few miserable stalks of wheat, the effect, no doubt, of a curious desire on the part of the agriculturists of the country to see whether such a thing as the raising of grain in those parched regions was practicable. Each stalk served as a perch for a grasshopper, which regaled the passers-by through this Egyptian scene with its strident, monotonous note. For about seven or eight years, the little tavern had been kept by a man and his wife, with two servants, a chambermaid named Trinette, and a hostler called Pico. This small staff was quite equal to all the requirements, for a canal between Beaucaire and Aigues-Mortes had revolutionised transportation by substituting boats for the cart and the stagecoach. And as though to add to the daily misery which this prosperous canal inflicted on the unfortunate innkeeper, whose utter ruin it was fast accomplishing. It was situated between the Rhône, from which it had its source, and the post-road it had depleted, not a hundred steps from the inn, of which we have given a brief but faithful description. The innkeeper himself was a man of from forty to forty-five years of age, tall, strong and bony, a perfect specimen of the natives of those southern latitudes. He had dark, sparkling and deep-set eyes, hooked nose and teeth white as those of a carnivorous animal. His hair, like his beard, which he wore under his chin, was thick and curly, and in spite of his age, but slightly interspersed with a few silvery threads. His naturally dark complexion had assumed a still further shade of brown from the habit the unfortunate man had acquired of stationing himself from morning to leave at the threshold of his door, 
on the lookout for guests who seldom came, yet there he stood, day after day, exposed to the meridional rays of a burning sun, with no other protection for his head than a red handkerchief twisted around it, after the manner of the Spanish muleteers. This man was our old acquaintance, Gaspar Cadarus. His wife, on the contrary, whose maiden name had been Madeleine Radel, was pale, meagre and sickly-looking. Born in the neighbourhood of Arles, she had shared in the beauty for which its women are proverbial, but that beauty had gradually withered beneath the devastating influence of the slow fever so prevalent among dwellers by the ponds of Egmort and the marshes of Camargue. She remained nearly always in her second-floor chamber, shivering in her chair, or stretched languid and feeble on her bed, while her husband kept his daily watch at the door, a duty he performed with so much the greater willingness as it saved him the necessity of listening to the endless plaints and murmurs of his helpmate, who never saw him without breaking out into bitter invectives against fate, to all of which her husband would calmly return an unvarying reply in these philosophic words. la carconte, it is God's pleasure that things should be so. The sobriquet of la carconte had been bestowed on Madeleine Radel from the fact that she had been born in a village, so called, situated between Salon and Lambesque. And as a custom existed among the inhabitants of that part of France, where Cadarus lived, of styling every person by some particular and distinctive appellation, her husband had bestowed on her the name of La Carconte, in place of her sweet and euphonious name of Madeleine, which in all probability his rude guttural language would not have enabled him to pronounce. Still, let it not be supposed that amid this affected resignation to the will of Providence, the unfortunate innkeeper did not writhe under the double misery of seeing the hateful canal carry off his customers and his profits and the daily infliction of his peevish partner's murmurs and lamentations. Like other dwellers in the South, he was a man of sober habits and moderate desires, but fond of external show, vain and addicted to display. During the days of his prosperity, not a festivity took place without himself and wife being among the spectators. He dressed in the picturesque costume worn upon grand occasions by the inhabitants of the south of France, bearing equal resemblance to the style adopted both by the Catalan and the Andalusians, while la Carconte displayed the charming fashion prevalent among the women of Arles, a mode of attire borrowed equally from Greece and Arabia. But by degrees, watch-chains, necklaces, party-coloured scarves, embroidered bodices, velvet vests, elegantly worked stockings, striped gaiters and silver buckles for the shoes all disappeared, and Gaspar Cadarus, unable to appear abroad in his pristine splendour, had given up any further participation in the pomps and vanities, both for himself and wife, although a bitter feeling of envious discontent filled his mind as the sound of mirth and merry music from the joyous revellers reached even the miserable hostelry to which he still clung, more for the shelter than the profit it afforded. Cadarus, then, was, as usual, at his place of observation before the door, his eyes glancing listlessly from a piece of the closely shaven grass, on which some fowls were industriously, though fruitlessly, endeavouring to turn up some grain or insect suited to their palate, 
to the deserted road, which led away to the north and south, when he was aroused by the shrill voice of his wife, and grumbling to himself as he went, he mounted to her chamber, first taking care, however, to set the entrance door wide open as an invitation to any chance traveller who might be passing. At the moment Caderousse quitted his sentry-like watch before the door, the road on which he so eagerly strained his sight was void and lonely as a desert at midday. There it lay, stretching out into one interminable line of dust and sand, with its sides bordered by tall, meagre trees, altogether presenting so uninviting an appearance that no one in his senses could have imagined that any traveller, at liberty to regulate his hours for journeying, would choose to expose himself in such a formidable Sahara. Nevertheless, had Caderousse but retained his post a few minutes longer, he might have caught a dim outline of something approaching from the direction of Bellegarde. As the moving object drew nearer, he would easily have perceived that it consisted of a man and horse, between whom the kindest and most amiable understanding appeared to exist. The horse was of Hungarian breed and ambled along at an easy pace. His rider was a priest, dressed in black, and wearing a three-cornered hat, and in spite of the ardent rays of a noonday sun, the pair came on with a fair degree of rapidity. Having arrived before the Pont du Gard, the horse stopped, but whether for his own pleasure or that of his rider would have been difficult to say. However, that might have been the priest dismounting, led his steed by the bridle in search of some place to which he could secure him. Availing himself of a handle that projected from a half-fallen door, he tied the animal safely, and having drawn a red cotton handkerchief from his pocket, wiped away the perspiration that streamed from his brow. Then, advancing to the door, struck thrice with the end of his iron-shod stick. At this unusual sound, a huge black dog came rushing to meet the daring assailant of his ordinarily tranquil abode, snarling and displaying his sharp white teeth with a determined hostility that abundantly proved how little he was accustomed to society. At that moment a heavy footstep was heard, descending the wooden staircase that led from the upper floor, and with many bows and courteous smiles, mine host of the Pont du Gard besought his guest to enter. "'You are welcome, sir, most welcome,' repeated the astonished Caderousse. "'Now then, Margotin,' cried he, speaking to the dog, "'will you be quiet? Pray don't hear him, sir. He only barks, he never bites. I make no doubt a glass of good wine would be acceptable this dreadful yacht day.' Then, perceiving for the first time the garb of the traveller he had to entertain, Caderousse hastily exclaimed, a thousand pardon i really did not observe whom i had the honour to receive under my poor roof what would the abbe please to have what refreshment can i offer all i have is at his service the priest gazed on the person addressing him with a long and searching gaze there even seemed a disposition on his part to court a similar scrutiny on the part of the innkeeper then observing in the countenance of the latter no other expression than extreme surprise at his own want of attention to an inquiry so courteously worded, he deemed it as well to terminate this dumb show, and therefore said, speaking with a strong Italian accent, "'You are, I presume, Monsieur Caderousse?' "'Yes, sir,' 
answered the host, even more surprised at the question than he had been by the silence which had preceded it. I am Gaspard Caderousse, at your service. Gaspard Caderousse, rejoined the priest. Yes, Christian and surname are the same. You formerly lived, I believe, in the Alley de Mayon, on the fourth floor. I did. And you followed the business of a tailor. True, I was a tailor, till the trade fell off. It is so hot at Marseille that I really believe that the respectable inhabitants will in time go without any clothing or whatever. But talking of heat, is there nothing I can offer you by way of refreshment? Yes, sir. Let me have a bottle of your best wine, and then, with your permission, we will resume our conversation from where we left off. As you please, sir, said Caderousse, who, anxious not to lose the present opportunity of finding a customer for one of the few bottles of Cahors still remaining in his possession, hastily raised a trapdoor in the floor of the apartment they were in, which served both as parlour and kitchen. Upon issuing forth from his subterranean retreat at the expiration of five minutes, he found the abbe seated upon a wooden stool, leaning his elbow on a table, while Margotin, whose animosity seemed appeased by the unusual command of the traveller for refreshments, had crept up to him, and had established himself very comfortably between his knees, his long skinny neck resting on his lap, while his dim eye was fixed earnestly on the traveller's face. "'Are you quite alone?' inquired the guest, as Caderousse placed before him the bottle of wine and the glass. "'Quite, quite alone,' replied the man. "'Or at least practically so, for my poor wife, who is the only person in the house beside myself, is laid up with illness, and unable to render me the least assistance. Poor thing!' "'You are married, then,' said the priest, with a show of interest, glancing round as he spoke at the scanty furnishings of the apartment. "'Ah, sir,' said Caderousse with a sigh, "'it is easy to perceive I am not a rich man, "'but in this world a man does not thrive the better for being honest.' The abbé fixed on him a searching, penetrating glance. "'Yes, honest. "'I can certainly say that much for myself.' continued the innkeeper, fairly sustaining the scrutiny of the abbé's gaze. I can boast with truth of being an honest man, and, continued he significantly with a hand on his breast, and shaking his head, that is more than everyone can say nowadays. So much the better for you, if what you assert be true, said the abbé, for I am firmly persuaded that sooner or later the good will be rewarded, and the wicked punished. Such words as those belong to your profession, answered Caderousse, and you do well to repeat them, but, added he with a bitter expression of countenance, one is free to believe them or not, as one pleases. You are wrong to speak thus, said the abbé, and perhaps I may in my own person be able to prove to you how completely you are in error. What mean you? inquired Carus with a look of surprise. In the first place, I must be satisfied that you are the person I am in search of. What proofs do you require? Did you, 
In the year 1814 or 1815, know anything of a young sailor named Dante. Dante? Did I know poor dear Edmond? Why, Edmond Dante and myself were intimate friends, exclaimed Caderousse, whose countenance flushed darkly as he caught the penetrating gaze of the abbe fixed on him, while the clear, calm eye of the questioner seemed to dilate with feverish scrutiny. You remind me, said the priest, that the young man concerning whom I asked you was so to bear the name of Edmond. Said to bear the name, repeated Caderousse, becoming excited and eager. Why, he was so called as truly as I myself bore the appellation of Gaspard Caderousse. But tell me, I pray, what has become of poor Edmond? Did you know him? Is he alive and at liberty? Is he prosperous and happy? He died a more wretched, hopeless, heartbroken prisoner than the felons who pay the penalty of their crimes at the galleys of Toulon. A deadly pallor followed the flush on the countenance of Caderousse, who turned away, and the priest saw him wiping the tears from his eyes with the corner of the red handkerchief twisted round his head. Poor fellow! Poor fellow! murmured Caderousse. Well there, sir! is another proof that good people are never rewarded on this earth, and that none but the wicked prosper. Oh, continued Caderousse, speaking in the highly coloured language of the South, the world grows worse and worse. Why does not God, if he really hates the wicked as he said he do, send down brimstone and fire and consume them altogether? You speak as though you had loved this young Dante, observed the abbe, without taking any notice of his companion's vehemence. And so I did, replied Caderousse, though once, I confess, I envied him his good fortune. But I swear to you, sir, I swear to you by everything a man holds dear, I have since then deeply and sincerely lamented his unhappy fate. There was a brief silence during which the fixed, searching eye of the abbe was employed in scrutinizing the agitated features of the innkeeper. You knew the poor lad then, continued Caderousse. I was called to see him on his dying bed, that I might administer to him the consolations of religion. And of what did he die? asked Caderousse in a choking voice. Of what, think you, do young and strong men die in prison? when they are scarcely numbered the thirtieth year, unless it be of imprisonment. Caderousse wiped away the large beads of perspiration that gathered on his brow. But the strangest part of the story is, resumed the abbe, that Dante, even in his dying moments, swore by his crucified Redeemer that he was utterly ignorant of the cause of his detention. And so he was, murmured Caderousse. How should he have been otherwise? Oh, sir, the poor fellow told you the truth. And for that reason, he besought me to try and clear up a mystery he had never been able to penetrate, and to clear his memory should any foul spot or stain have fallen on it. And here, the look of the abbe becoming more and more fixed, seemed to rest with ill-concealed satisfaction on the gloomy depression 
which was rapidly spreading over the countenance of Caderousse. A rich Englishman, continued the abbe, who had been his companion in misfortune, but had been released from prison during the second restoration, was possessed of a diamond of immense value. This jewel he bestowed on Dante upon himself, quitting the prison, as a mark of his gratitude for the kindness and brotherly care with which Dante had nursed him in a severe illness he underwent during his confinement. Instead of employing this diamond in attempting to bribe his jailers, who might only have taken it and then betrayed him to the governor, Dante carefully preserved it, that in the event of his getting out of prison, he might have wherewithal to live, for the sale of such a diamond would have quite sufficed to make his fortune. Then I suppose, asked Caderousse with eager glowing looks, that it was a stone of immense value. Why, everything is a relative, answered the abbe. To one in Edmond's position, the diamond certainly was of great value. It was estimated at fifty thousand francs. Bless me, exclaimed Caderousse. Fifty thousand francs? Surely the diamond was as large as a nut to be worth all that. No, replied the abbe. It was not of such a size as that. But you shall judge for yourself. I have it with me. The sharp gaze of Caderousse was instantly directed towards the priest's garments, as though hoping to discover the location of the treasure. Calmly drawing forth from his pocket a small box covered with black chagrin, the abbe opened it and displayed to the dazzled eyes of Caderousse the sparkling jewel it contained, set in a ring of admirable workmanship. "'And that diamond!' cried Caderousse, almost breathless with eager admiration. "'You say it's worth fifty thousand francs?' "'It is without the setting, which is also valuable,' replied the abbe, as he closed the box and returned it to his pocket, while its brilliant hues seemed still to dance before the eyes of the fascinated innkeeper. "'But how comes the diamond in your possession, sir? "'Did Edmond make you his heir?' No, a merely his testamentary executor. I once possessed four dear and faithful friends, besides the maiden to whom I was betrothed, he said, and I feel convinced they have all unfeignedly grieved over my loss. The name of one of the four friends is Caderousse. The innkeeper shivered. Another of the number, continued the abbe, without seeming to notice the emotion of Caderousse, he is called Danglars, and the third, in spite of being my rival, entertained a very sincere affection for me. A fiendish smile played over the features of Caderousse, who was about to break in upon the abbe's speech when the latter, waving his hand, said, Allow me to finish first, and then, if you have any observations to make, you can do so afterwards. The third of my friends, although my rival, was much attached to me. His name was Fernand. That of the betrothed was... Stay, stay, continued the abbe. I have forgotten what he called her. Mercedes, said Caderousse eagerly. True, said the abbe with a stifled sigh. Mercedes it was. Go on, urged Caderousse. Bring me a carafe of water, said the abbe. 
Caderousse quickly performed the stranger's bidding, and after pouring some into a glass and slowly swallowing its contents, the abbe resumed his usual placidity of manner, said as he placed his empty glass on the table, "'Where did we leave off?' "'The name of Edmond's betrothed was Mercedes.' "'To be sure. You will go to Marseille,' said Dante. "'For you understand, I repeat his words just as he uttered them. Do you understand?' "'Perfectly.' "'You will sell this diamond. You will divide the money into five equal parts.' and give an equal portion to those good friends, the only persons who have loved me upon earth. But why into five parts? asked Caderousse. You only mentioned four persons. Because the fifth is dead, as I hear. The fifth sharer is Edmond's bequest, was his own father. Too true, too true, ejaculated Caderousse, almost suffocated by the contending passions which assailed him, the poor old man, he did die. I learned so much at Marseille, replied the abbe, making a strong effort to appear indifferent. But from the length of time that has elapsed since the death of the elder Dante, I was unable to obtain any particular of his end. Can you enlighten me on that point? I do not know who could if I could not, said Cadorus. Why? I lived almost on the same floor with the poor old man. Ah, yes, about a year after the disappearance of his son, the poor old man died. Of what did he die? Why, the doctors call his complaint gastroenteritis, I believe. His acquaintances say he died of grief. But I, who saw him in his dying moments, I say he died of... Caderousse paused. Of what? asked the priest anxiously and eagerly. Why, of downright starvation. Starvation? exclaimed the abbe, springing from his seat. Why, the vilest animals are not suffered to die by such a death as that. The very dogs that wander houseless and homeless in the streets find some pitying hand to cast them a mouthful of bread. And that a man, a Christian, should be allowed to perish of hunger in the midst of other men who call themselves Christians, is too horrible for belief. Oh, it is impossible, utterly impossible. What I have said, I have said, answered Caderousse. And you are a fool for having said anything about it, said a voice from the top of the stairs. Why should you meddle with what does not concern you? The two men turned quickly and saw the sickly countenance of La Carconte peering between the baluster rails, attracted by the sound of voices. She had feebly dragged herself down the stairs and seated on the lower step, head on knees. She had listened to the foregoing conversation. "'Mind your own business, wife,' replied Caderousse sharply. "'This gentleman asked me for information which common politeness will not permit me to refuse.' "'Politeness! You simpleton!' retorted La Carconte. What have you to do with politeness? I should like to know. Better study a little common prudence. How do you know the motives that person may have for trying to extract all he can from you? I pledge you my word, madame, said the abbe, that my intentions are good, and that your husband can incur no risk, providing he answers me candidly. Ah, that's all very fine, retorted the woman. 
Nothing is easier than to begin with fair promises and assurances of nothing to fear. But when poor, silly folks like my husband they have been persuaded to tell all they know, the promises and assurances of safety are quickly forgotten. And at some moment, when nobody is expecting it, behold, trouble and misery and all sorts of persecutions are heaped on the unfortunate wretches who cannot even see whence all their afflictions come. Nay, nay, my good woman, make yourself perfectly easy, I beg of you. Whatever evils may befall you, they will not be occasioned by my instrumentality that I solemnly promise you. La Carconte muttered a few inarticulate words, then let her head again drop upon her knees, and went into a fit of ague, leaving the two speakers to resume the conversation, but remaining so as to be able to hear every word they uttered. Again, the abbe had been obliged to swallow a draught of water to calm the emotions that threatened to overpower him. When he had sufficiently recovered himself, he said, It appears, then, that the miserable old man you are telling me of was forsaken by everyone. Surely, had not such been the case, he would not have perished by so dreadful a death. Why, he was not altogether forsaken, continued Caderousse, for Mercedes, the Catalan, and Monsieur Morel were very kind to him. But somehow the poor old man had contracted a profound hatred for Fernand, the very person added Caderousse with a bitter smile, that you named just now as being one of Dante's faithful and attached friends. And was he not so? asked the abbe. Gaspard! Gaspard! murmured the woman from her seat on the stairs. Mind what you are saying! Caderousse made no reply to these words, though evidently irritated and annoyed by the interruption, but addressing the abbe said, can a man be faithful to another whose wife he covets and desires for himself? But Dante was so honourable and true in his own nature that he believed everybody's professions of friendship. Poor Edmond! He was cruelly deceived, but it was fortunate that he never knew, or he might have found it more difficult when on his deathbed to pardon his enemies. And whatever people may say, continued Caderousse in his native language, which was not altogether devoid of rude poetry. I cannot help being more frightened at the idea of the malediction of the dead man than the hatred of the living. Imbecile! exclaimed La Carconte. Do you then know in what manner Fernand injured Dante? inquired the abbe of Caderousse. Do I? No one better. Speak out, then. Say what it was. Gaspard, cried La Carconte, do as you will. You are master. But if you take my advice, you'll hold your tongue. Well, wife, replied Caderousse, I don't know but what you're right. So you will say nothing? asked the abbe. Why, what good would it do? asked Caderousse. If the poor lad were leaving and came to me and begged that I would candidly tell which were his true and which his false friends, why, perhaps I should not hesitate, but you tell me he is no more, and therefore can have nothing to do with hatred or revenge, so let all such feeling be buried with him. You prefer, then, said the abbe, that I should bestow on men you say are false and treacherous, 
the reward intended for faithful friendship. That is true enough, returned Caderousse. You say truly, the gift of poor Edmond was not meant for such traitors as Fernand and Danglars. Besides, what would it be to them? No more than a drop of water in the ocean. Remember, chimed in La Carconte, those two could crush you at a single blow. How so? inquired the abbe. Are these persons then so rich and powerful? Do you not know their history? I do not. Pray relate it to me. Caderousse seemed to reflect for a few moments, then said, No, truly it would take up too much time. Well, my good friend, returned the abbe in a tone that indicated utter indifference on his part, you are at liberty either to speak or be silent, just as you please. For my own part, I respect your scruples and admire your sentiments, so let the matter end. I shall do my duty as conscientiously as I can, and fulfil my promise to the dying man. My first business will be to dispose of this diamond. So saying, the abbe again drew the small box from his pocket, opened it, and contrived to hold it in such a light as a bright flash of brilliant hues passed before the dazzled gaze of Caderousse. Wife! Wife! cried he in a hoarse voice. Come here! Diamond! exclaimed La Carconte, rising and descending to the chamber with a tolerably firm step. What diamond are you talking about? Why, did you not hear all we said? inquired Caderousse. It is a beautiful diamond, left by poor Edmond Dante, to be sold, and the money divided between his father, Mercedes, his betrothed bride, Fernand, Danglars, and myself. The jewel is worth at least fifty thousand francs. Oh, what a magnificent jewel, cried the astonished woman. The fifth part of the profits from this stone belong to us, then, does it not? asked Caderousse. It does, replied the abbe, with the addition of an equal division of that part intended for the elder Dante, which I believe myself at liberty to divide equally with the four survivors. And why among us four? inquired Caderousse. As being the friends Edmond esteemed most faithful and devoted to him. I don't call those friends who betray and ruin you, murmured the wife in her turn in a low muttering voice. Of course not, rejoined Caderousse quickly. No more do I, and that was what I was observing to this gentleman just now. I said I looked upon it as a sacrilegious profanation to reward treachery, perhaps crime. Remember, answered the abbe calmly, as he replaced the jewel and its case in the pocket of his cassock, it is your fault, not mine, that I do so. You will have the goodness to furnish me with the address of both Fernand and Danglars, in order that I may execute Edmond's last wishes. The agitation of Caderousse became extreme, and large drops of perspiration rolled from his heated brow. As he saw the abbe rise from his seat and go towards the door, as though to ascertain if his horse were sufficiently refreshed to continue his journey, Caderousse and his wife exchanged looks of deep meaning. There! You see, wife, said the former, this splendid diamond might all be ours, if we choose. Do you believe it? Why, surely a man of his holy profession would not deceive us. Well, replied La Carconte, do as you like, 
For my part, I wash my hands of the fair. So saying, she once more climbed the staircase leading to her chamber, her body convulsed with chills and her teeth rattling in her head in spite of the intense heat of the weather. Arrived at the top stair, she turned around and called out in a warning tone to her husband. Gaspar, consider well what you are about to do. I have both reflected and decided, answered he. La Carconte then entered her chamber, the flooring of which creaked beneath her heavy, uncertain tread as she proceeded towards her armchair, into which she fell as though exhausted. Well, asked the abbe as he returned to the apartment below, what have you made up your mind to do? To tell you all I know, was the reply. I certainly think you act wisely in so doing, said the priest. Not because I have the least desire to learn anything you may please to conceal from me, but simply that it, through your assistance, I should distribute a legacy according to the wishes of the testator. Why, so much the better, that is all. I hope it may be so, replied Caderousse, his face flushed with cupidity. I am all attention, said the abbe. Stop a minute, answered Caderousse. We might be interrupted in the most interesting part of my story, which would be a pity, and it is as well that your visit either should be made known only to ourselves. With these words he went stealthily to the door, which he closed, and by way of still greater precaution, bolted and barred it, as he was accustomed to do at night. During this time the abbe had chosen his place for listening at his ease. He removed his seat into a corner of the room where he himself would be in deep shadow, while the light would be fully thrown on the narrator. Then, with head bent down and hands clasped or rather clinched together, he prepared to give his whole attention to Caderousse, who seated himself on the little stool exactly opposite to him. Remember, this is no affair of mine, said the trembling voice of La Carconte, as though through the flooring of her chamber, she viewed the scene that was enacting below. Enough, enough, replied Caderousse. Say no more about it. I would take all the consequences upon myself. And he began his story. End of chapter 26。Chapter This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 27 The Story First, sir, said Caderousse, you must make me a promise. What is that? inquired the abbe. Why, if you ever make use of the details I am about to give you, that you will never let anyone know that it was I who supplied them, for the persons of whom I am about to talk are rich and powerful, and if they only laid the tips of their fingers on me, I should break to pieces like glass. Make yourself easy, my friend, replied the abbe. I am a priest, and confessions die in my breast. Recollect, our only desire is to carry out in a fitting manner the last wishes of our friend. Speak, then, without reserve, as without hatred. Tell the truth, the whole truth. I do not know, 
never may know the persons of whom you are about to speak. Besides, I am an Italian and not a Frenchman and belong to God and not to man, and I shall shortly retire to my convent, which I have only quitted to fulfil the last wishes of a dying man. This positive assurance seemed to give Caderousse a little courage. Well then, under these circumstances, said Caderousse, I will, I even believe, I ought to undeceive you as to the friendship which poor Edmond thought so sincere and unquestionable. Begin with this, father, if you please, said the abbe. Edmond talked to me a great deal about the old man, for whom he had the deepest love. The history is a sad one, sir, said Caderousse, shaking his head. Perhaps you know all the earlier part of it. Yes, sir, answered the abbe. Edmond related to me everything until the moment when he was arrested in a small cabaret close to Marseilles. At La Reserve? Oh, yes, I can see it all before me this moment. Was it not his betrothal feast? It was, and the feast that began so gaily had a very sorrowful ending. A police commissary, followed by four soldiers, entered, and Dante was arrested. Yes, and up to this point I know all, said the priest. Dante himself only knew that which personally concerned him, for he never beheld again the five persons I have named to you, or heard mention of any one of them. Well, when Dante was arrested, Monsieur Morel hastened to obtain the particular, and they were very sad. The old man returned alone to his home, folded up his wedding suit with tears in his eyes, and paced up and down his chamber the whole day, and would not go to bed at all, for I was underneath him, and heard him walking the whole night, and for myself I assure you I could not sleep either, for the grief of the poor father gave me great uneasiness, and every step he took went to my heart as really as if his foot had pressed against my breast. The next day Mercedes came to implore the protection of Monsieur de Villefort. She did not obtain it, however, and went to visit the old man. When she saw him so miserable and heartbroken, having passed a sleepless night and not touched food, since the previous day, she wished him to go with her, that she might take care of him. But the old man would not consent. No, was the old man's reply. I will not leave this house, for my poor dear boy loves me better than anything in the world. And if he gets out of prison, he will come and see me the first thing. And what would he think of if I did not wait here for him? I heard all this from the window, for I was anxious that Mercedes should persuade the old man to accompany her, for his footsteps over my head night and day did not leave me a moment's repose. But did you not go upstairs and try to console the poor old man? asked the abbe. Ah, sir, replied Caderousse. We cannot console those who will not be consoled, and he was one of these. Besides, I know not why, but he seemed to dislike seeing me. One night, however, I heard his sobs, 
and I could not resist my desire to go up to him. But when I reached his door, he was no longer weeping, but praying. I cannot now repeat to you, sir, all the eloquent words and imploring language he made use of. It was more than piety. It was more than grief. And I, who am no canter and hate the Jesuits, said then to myself, It is really well, and I am very glad that I have not any children, for if I were a father and felt such excessive grief as the old man does, and did not find in my memory or heart all he is now saying, I should throw myself into the sea at once, for I could not bear it. Poor father, murmured the priest. From day to day he lived on alone and more and more solitary. Monsieur Morel and Mercedes came to see him, but his door was closed, and although I was certain he was at home, he would not make any answer. One day, when, contrary to his custom, he had admitted Mercedes, and the poor girl, in spite of her own grief and despair, endeavoured to console him, he said to her, Be assured, my dear daughter, he is dead, and instead of expecting him, it is he who is awaiting us. I am quite happy, for I am the oldest, and of course shall see him first. However well disposed a person may be, why you see we leave off after a time seeing persons who are in sorrow, they make one melancholy, and so at last old Dante was left all to himself and I only saw from time to time strangers go up to him and come down again with some bundle they tried to hide. But I guessed what these bundles were, and what he sold by degrees, what he had to pay for his subsistence. At length the poor old fellow reached the end of all he had. He owed three-quarters rent, and they threatened to turn him out. He begged for another week, which was granted to him. I know this because the landlord came into my apartment when he left his. For the first three days I heard him walking about as usual, but on the fourth I heard nothing. I then resolved to go up to him at all risks. The door was closed, but I looked through the keyhole and saw him so pale and haggard that believing him very ill, I went and told Monsieur Morel and then ran on to Mercedes. They both came immediately. Monsieur Morel bringing a doctor, and the doctor said it was inflammation of the bowels and ordered him a limited diet. I was there too, and I never shall forget the old man's smile at his prescription. From that time he received all who came. He had an excuse for not eating any more. The doctor had put him on a diet. The abbe uttered a kind of groan. The story interests you, does it not, sir? inquired Caderousse. Yes, replied the abbe. It is very affecting. Mercedes came again, and she found him so altered that she was even more anxious than before to have him taken to her own home. This was Monsieur Morel's wish also, who would fain have conveyed the old man against his consent. But the old man resisted and cried so that they were actually frightened. Mercedes remained 
therefore, by his bedside, and Monsieur Morel went away, making a sign to the Catalan that he had left his purse on the chimney-piece. But availing himself of the doctor's order, the old man would not take any sustenance at length. After nine days of despair and fasting, the old man died, cursing those who had caused his misery and saying to Mercedes, If you ever see my Edmond again, tell him, I die blessing him. The abbe rose from his chair and made two turns round the chamber and pressed his trembling hand against his parched throat. And you believe he died? Of hunger, sir, of hunger, said Cadorus. I am as certain of it as that we two are Christians. The abbe, with a shaking hand, seized a glass of water that was standing by him, half full, swallowed it at one gulp, and then resumed his seat with red eyes and pale cheeks. This was indeed a horrid event, he said in a hoarse voice. The more so, sir, as it was men's and not God's doing. Tell me of these men, said the abbe. And remember, too, he added in an almost menacing tone, you have promised to tell me everything. Tell me, therefore, who are these men who killed the son with despair and the father with famine? Two men, jealous of him, sir, one from love and the other from ambition, Fernand and Danglars. How was this jealousy manifested? Speak on. They denounced Edmond as a Bonapartist agent. Which of the two denounced him? Which was the real delinquent? Both, sir, one with a letter, and the other put it in the post. And where was this letter written? At La Reserve, the day before the betrothal feast. Twas so, then, twas so, then, murmured the abbe. Oh, Faria, Faria, how well did you judge men and things! What did you please to say, sir? asked Cadarus. Nothing, nothing, replied the priest. Go on. It was Danglars who wrote the denunciation with his left hand, that his writing might not be recognized, and Fernand who put it in the post. But, exclaimed the abbe suddenly, you were there yourself. I, said Cadarus, astonished. Who told you I was there? The abbe saw he had overshot the mark, and he added quickly, No one, but in order to have known everything so well, you must have been an eyewitness. True, true, said Cadarus in a choking voice. I, I was there. And did you not remonstrate against such infamy? asked the abbe. If not, you were an accomplice. Sir, replied Cadarus, they had made me drink to such an excess that I nearly lost all perception. I had only an indistinct understanding of what was passing around me. I said all that a man in such a state could say, but they both assured me that it was a jest they were carrying on and perfectly harmless. 
Next day. Next day, sir, you must have seen plain enough what they had been doing, yet you said nothing, though you were present when Dante was arrested. Yes, sir, I was there, and very anxious to speak, but Donglars restrained me. If he should be really guilty, said he, and did really put it in the island of Elba, if he is really charged with a letter for the Bonapartist committee at Paris, and if they find this letter upon him, those who have supported him will pass for his accomplice. I confess I had my fears in the state in which politics then were, and I held my tongue. It was cowardly, I confess, but it was not criminal. I understand you allowed matters to take their course. That was all. Yes, sir, answered Calarus, and remorse preys on me night and day. I often ask pardon of God, I swear to you, because this action, the only one with which I have seriously to reproach myself in all my life, is no doubt the cause of my abject condition. I am expiating a moment of selfishness, and so I always say to La Caconte, when she complains, Hold your tongue, woman, it is the will of God and Caderousse bowed his head with every sign of real repentance. "'Well, sir,' said the abbé, "'you have spoken unreservedly, "'and thus to accuse yourself is to deserve a pardon. "'Unfortunately, Edmond is dead and has not pardoned me.' "'He did not know,' said the abbé. "'But he knows it all now,' interrupted Caderousse. "'They say the dead,' know everything. There was a brief silence. The abbé rose and paced up and down pensively and then resumed his seat. You have two or three times mentioned a Monsieur Morel, he said. Who was he? The owner of the pharaoh and patron of Dante. And what part did he play in this sad drama? inquired the abbé. The part of an honest man, full of courage, and real regard. Twenty times he interceded for Edmond. When the emperor returned, he wrote, implored, threatened, and so energetically that on the second restoration he was persecuted as a Bonapartist. Ten times, as I told you, he came to see Dante's father and offered to receive him in his own house. And the night or two before his death, as I have already said, he left his purse on the mantelpiece with which they paid the old man's debts and buried him decently. And so Edmond's father died, as he had lived, without doing harm to anyone. I have the purse still by me, a large one made of red silk. And, asked the abbé, is Monsieur Morel still alive? Yes, replied Caderousse. In that case, replied the abbé, he should be rich or happy. Caderousse smiled bitterly. Yes, happy as myself, said he. What, Monsieur Morel unhappy? exclaimed the abbé. He is reduced almost to the last extremity. Nay, he is almost at the point of dishonour. How? Yes, continued Caderousse. So it is after five and twenty years of labour after having acquired a most honourable name in the trade of Marseille, Monsieur Morel is utterly ruined. 
He has lost five ships in two years, has suffered by the bankruptcy of three large houses, and his only hope now is in that very pharaoh in which poor Dante commanded, and which is expected from the Indies with a cargo of cochineal and indigo. If this ship founders like the others, he is a ruined man. And has the unfortunate man wife or children? inquired the abbe. Yes, he has a wife, who through everything has behaved like an angel. He has a daughter, who was about to marry the man she loved, but whose family now will not allow him to wed the daughter of a ruined man. He has, besides, a son, a lieutenant in the army, and, as you may suppose, all this, instead of lessening, only augments his sorrows. If he were alone in the world, you would blow out his brains, and there would be an end. Horrible! ejaculated the priest. And it is thus heaven recompenses virtue, sir, added Caderousse. You see, I who never did a bad action, but that I have told you of, I mean destitution, with my poor wife dying of fever before my very eyes, and I unable to do anything in the world for her. I should die of hunger, as old Dante did, while Fernand and Danglars are rolling in wealth. How is that? Because their deeds have brought them good fortune, while honest men have been reduced to misery. What has become of Danglars, the instigator and therefore the most guilty? What has become of him? Why, he left Marseille and was taken on the recommendation of Monsieur Morel, who did not know his crime, as cashier into a Spanish bank. During the war with Spain, he was employed in the commissariat of the French army and made a fortune. Then with that money he speculated in the funds and trebled or quadrupled his capital. And having first married his banker's daughter, who left him a widower. He has married a second time, a widow, a Madame de Nargonne, daughter of Monsieur de Servieux, the King's Chamberlain, who is in high favour at court. He is a millionaire, and they have made him a baron, and now he is the Baron d'Anglars, with a fine residence on the Rue de Mont Blanc, with ten horses in his stables, six footmen in his antechamber, and I know not how many millions in his strong box. Ah, said the abbe in a peculiar tone, he is happy. Happy? Who can answer for that? Happiness or unhappiness is the secret known but to oneself and the walls. Walls have ears but no tongue. But if a large fortune produces happiness, Danglars is happy. And Fernand? Fernand? Why, much the same story. But how could a poor Catalan fisherboy, without education or resources, make a fortune? I confess this staggers me. And it has staggered everybody. There must have been in his life some strange secret that no one knows. But then, by what visible steps has he attained his high fortune or high position? Both, sir. He has both fortune and position, both. This must be impossible. It would seem so, but listen, and you will understand. Some days before the return of the emperor, Fernand was drafted. The Bourbons left him quietly enough at the Catalans, 
but Napoleon returned. A special levy was made, and Fernand was compelled to join. I went too, but as I was older than Fernand, and had just married my poor wife, I was only sent to the coast. Fernand was enrolled in the active troop, went to the frontier with his regiment, and was at the Battle of Ligny. The night after that battle he was sentry at the door of a general who carried on a secret correspondence with the enemy. That same night the general was to go over to the English. He proposed to Fernand to accompany him. Fernand agreed to do so, deserted his post and followed the general. Fernand would have been court-martialed if Napoleon had remained on the throne, but his action was rewarded by the Bourbons. He returned to France with the epaulette of sub-lieutenant, and as the protection of the general, who is in the highest favour, was accorded to him. He was a captain in 1823, during the Spanish War, that is to say, at the time when Donglars made his early speculations. Fernand was a Spaniard, and being sent to Spain to ascertain the feeling of his fellow countrymen, found Donglars there, got on very intimate terms with him, won over the support of the royalists at the capital, and in the provinces received promises and made pledges on his own part, guided his regiment by paths known to himself alone through the mountain gorges which were held by the royalists, and in fact rendered such service in this brief campaign that after taking of Trocadero he was made colonel and received the title of count and the cross of an officer of the Legion of Honour. Destiny! Destiny! murmured the abbe. Yes, but listen, this was not all. The war with Spain being ended, Fernand's career was checked by the long peace which seemed likely to endure throughout Europe. Greece only had risen against Turkey and had begun her war of independence. All eyes were turned towards Athens. It was the fashion to pity and support the Greeks. The French government, without protecting them openly, as you know, gave countenance to volunteer assistance. Fernand sought and obtained leave to go and serve in Greece, still having his name kept on the army roll. Sometime after, it was stated that the Comte de Morcerf, this was the name he bore, had entered the service of Ali Pasha with the rank of Instructor General. Ali Pasha was killed, as you know, but before he died, he recompensed the service of Fernand by leaving him a considerable sum, with which he returned to France when he was gazetted Lieutenant General. So that now, inquired the abbe, so that now, continued Caderousse, he owns a magnificent house, numero 27, Rue du Helder, Paris. The abbe opened his mouth hesitated for a moment, then, making an effort at self-control, he said, "'And Mercedes, they tell me that she has disappeared.' "'Disappeared?' said Caderousse. "'Yes, as the sun disappears, to rise the next day with still more splendour.' "'Has she made a fortune also?' inquired the abbe, with an ironical smile. "'Mercedes!' is at this moment one of the greatest ladies in Paris, replied Caderousse. Go on, said the abbe. 
It seems as if I were listening to the story of a dream. But I have seen things so extraordinary that what you tell me seems less astonishing than it otherwise might. Mercedes was at first in the deepest despair at the blow which deprived her of Edmond. I have told you of her attempts to propitiate Monsieur de Villefort, her devotion to the elder Dante. In the midst of her despair, a new affliction overtook her. This was the departure of Fernand, of Fernand whose crime she did not know and whom she regarded as her brother. Fernand went, and Mercedes remained alone. Three months passed, and still she wept. No news of Edmond, no news of Fernand, no companionship save that of an old man who was dying with despair. One evening, after a day of accustomed vigil at the angle of two roads leading to Marseille from the Catalans, she returned to her home more depressed than ever. Suddenly, she heard a step she knew, turned anxiously around. The door opened and Fernand, dressed in the uniform of a sub-lieutenant, stood before her. It was not the one she wished for most, but it seemed as if a part of her past had returned to her. Mercedes seized Fernand's hands with a transport which he took for love, but which was only joy at being no longer alone in the world, and seeing at last a friend, after long hours of solitary sorrow. And then, it must be confessed, Fernand had never been hated. He was only not precisely loved. Another possessed all Mercedes' heart, that other was absent, had disappeared, perhaps was dead. At this last thought, Mercedes burst into a flood of tears and wrung her hands in agony. But the thought, which she had always repelled before when it was suggested to her by another, came now in full force upon her mind. And then too, old Dante incessantly said to her, Our Edmond is dead. If he were not... He would return to us. The old man died, as I have told you. Had he lived, Mercedes, perchance, had not become the wife of another, for he would have been there to reproach her infidelity. Fernand saw this, and when he learned of the old man's death, he returned. He was now a lieutenant. At his first coming, he had not said a word of love to Mercedes. At the second, he reminded her that he loved her. Mercedes begged for six months more in which to await and mourn for Edmond. So that, uh, said the abbe with a bitter smile, that makes eighteen months in all. What more could the most devoted lover desire? Then he murmured the words of the English poet. Frailty, thy name is woman. Six months afterwards, continued Caderousse. The marriage took place in the church of Acoul, The very church in which she was to have married Edmond, murmured the priest. There was only a change of bridegrooms. Well, Mercedes was married, proceeded Caderousse. But although in the eyes of the world she appeared calm, she nearly fainted as she passed La Reserve, where eighteen months before the betrothal had been celebrated with him 
whom she might have known she still loved, had she looked to the bottom of her heart. Fernand, more happy but not more at his ease, for I saw at this time he was in constant dread of Edmond's return. Fernand was very anxious to get his wife away, and to depart himself. There were too many unpleasant possibilities associated with the Catalans, and eight days after the wedding they left Marseille. "'Did you ever see Mercedes again?' inquired the priest. "'Yes. During the Spanish war at Perpignan, where Fernand had left her, she was attending to the education of her son.' The abbé started. "'Her son?' said he. "'Yes,' replied Caderousse. "'Little Albert.' "'But then, to be able to instruct her child,' continued the abbé, she must have received an education herself. I understood from Edmond that she was the daughter of a simple fisherman, beautiful but uneducated. Oh, replied Caderousse, did he know so little of this lovely betrothed? Mercedes might have been a queen, sir, if the crown were to be placed on the heads of the loveliest and most intelligent. Fernand's fortune was already waxing great, and she developed with his growing fortune. She learned drawing, music, everything. Besides, I believe between ourselves she did this in order to distract her mind that she might forget, and she only filled her head in order to alleviate the weight on her heart. But now her position in life is assured, continued Caderousse. No doubt fortune and honours have comforted her. She is rich. A countess, and yet... Caderousse paused. And yet what? asked the abbé. Yet I am sure she is not happy, said Caderousse. What makes you believe this? Why, when I found myself utterly destitute, I thought my old friends would perhaps assist me. So I went to Donglar, who would not even receive me, I called on Fernand, who sent me a hundred francs by his valet de chambre. Then you did not see either of them? No, but Madame de Morcerf saw me. How was that? As I went away, a purse fell at my feet. It contained five and twenty louis. I raised my head quickly and saw Mercedes, who at once shut the blind. And Monsieur de Villefort? asked the abbé. Oh, he never was a friend of mine. I did not know him, and I had nothing to ask of him. Do you not know what became of him, and the share he had in Edmond's misfortunes? No, I only know that some time after Edmond's arrest, he married Mademoiselle de Saint-Méran, and soon after left Marseille. No doubt he has been as lucky as the rest. No doubt he is as rich as Donglard as high in station as Fernand. I only, as you see, have remained poor, wretched, and forgotten. You are mistaken, my friend, replied the abbe. God may seem sometimes to forget for a time while his justice reposes, but there always comes a moment when he remembers, and behold, a proof. As he spoke, the abbe took the diamond from his pocket, and giving it to Caderousse, said, Here, my friend, take this diamond, 
It is yours. What? For me only? cried Caderousse. Ah, sir, do not jest with me. This diamond was to have been shared among his friends. Edmond had one friend only, and thus it cannot be divided. Take the diamond, then, and sell it. It is worth fifty thousand francs, and I repeat my wish that this son may suffice to release you from your wretchedness. Oh, sir, said Caderousse, putting out one hand timidly, and with the other wiping away the perspiration which bedewed his brow. Oh, sir, do not make a jest of the happiness or despair of a man. I know what happiness and what despair are, and I never make a jest of such feelings. Take it, then. But in exchange... Caderousse, who touched the diamond, withdrew his hand. The abbé smiled. In exchange, he continued, give me the red silk purse that Monsieur Morel left on old Dante's chimney-piece, and which you tell me is still in your hands. Caderousse, more and more astonished, went toward a large oaken cupboard, opened it, and gave the abbé a long purse of faded red silk, round which were two copper runners that had once been gilt. The abbé took it, and in return gave Caderousse the diamond. "'Oh, you are a man of God, sir,' cried Caderousse. "'For no one knew that Edmond had given you his diamond, "'and you might have kept it.' "'Which,' said the abbé to himself, "'you would have done.' The abbé rose, took his hat and gloves. "'Well,' he said, "'all you have told me is perfectly true, then, "'and I may believe it in every particular.' See, sir, replied Caderousse, in this corner is a crucifix in holy wood. Here on this shelf is my wife's testament. Open this book, and I will swear upon it with my hand on the crucifix. I will swear to you by my soul's salvation, my faith as a Christian. I have told everything to you as it occurred, and as the recording angel will tell it to the ear of God at the day of the last judgment. Tis well, said the abbe, "'convinced by his manner and tone that Caderousse spoke the truth. "'Tis well, and may this money profit you. "'Adieu. "'I go far from men who thus so bitterly injure each other.' "'The abbé with difficulty got away from the enthusiastic thanks of Caderousse, "'opened the door himself, got out, and mounted his horse, "'once more saluted the innkeeper, who kept uttering his loud farewells, and then returned by the road he had travelled in coming. When Caderousse turned around, he saw behind him La Carconte, paler and trembling more than ever. "'Is then all that I have heard really true?' she inquired. "'What? That he has given the diamond to us only?' inquired Caderousse, half bewildered with joy. "'Yes, and nothing more true. See, here it is.' The woman gazed at it a moment and then said in a gloomy voice, Suppose it's false. Caderousse started and turned pale. False, he muttered. False? Why should that man give me a false diamond? To get your secret without paying for it, you blockhead. 
Caderousse remained for a moment aghast under the weight of such an idea. Oh, he said, taking up his hat, which he placed on the red handkerchief tied around his head. We will soon find out. In what way? Why, the fair is on at Beaucaire. There are always jewellers from Paris there, and I will show it to them. Look after the house, wife, and I shall be back in two hours. And Caderousse left the house in haste, and ran rapidly in the direction opposite to that which the priest had taken. Fifty thousand francs, muttered La Carconte, when left alone. It is a large sum of money, but it is not a fortune. End of chapter 27